Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Anya Palmer, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Dr. Anna Catherine Grau and Professor Lisa Colton, editors of A Companion to Female Voice Song and Women's Musical Agency in the Middle Ages, the fifth volume in Brill's Companions to Musical Culture of Medieval and Early Modern Europe series. Published in August 2022, this collection brings together 17 essays that identify various ways that women contributed to musical culture before 1500 across Europe and in the Islamicite courts. So Anna and Lisa, thank you so much for taking time to talk today, especially I know we're coming to the start of the uh, new semester. Um, welcome to the podcast. Um, Hi. And thank you. It's yeah. wonderful to be here. Uh, just to get us started, I was wondering if you'd both be able to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your work and uh, where you're coming from intellectually and professionally. Um, Lisa, if you'd like to go first. Hello, so I'm Professor Lisa Colton. I work at the University of Liverpool, although um, quite a lot of this book was prepared when I was at my previous institution, which was the University of Huddersfield. Um, my fields of sort of expertise relate to late medieval song generally, but especially from England and France. And um, I'm really interested in lots of different methodologies, whether that's source studies, music analysis, or putting music in a kind of cultural context. And the theme of gender and women's contribution to musical culture is really important to me in all sorts of areas of my work. Thank you. Anna, do you want to speak a little bit? Yeah, so I'm Dr. Anna Catherine Grau. I'm a music and performing arts librarian at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, though I also changed jobs um, in the middle of this book. So I was mostly an adjunct professor um, at a couple of institutions in Chicago uh, before this. And I also, I take a lot of the same approaches as Lisa, which I think is part of how we ended up paired up for the project in the first place, but um, really have always focused on women and representation of women in music, even going back to my undergrad thesis, which is on Malmere motets. So I've been very consistent. Um, so uh, now I'm sort of juggling these, trying to keep in um, in this research field while also uh, working my nine to five job as a librarian. 
That is great. Uh, I feel like writing an undergrad thesis on Malmarie Motets is pretty hardcore, so congratulations. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, so A Companion to Female Voice Songs brings together 17 essays, which is very impressive. Congratulations. From various subfields and parts of the academy to think about um, how women have participated in medieval musical culture. And you kind of propose different ways we can think about women's voices in both song and music more generally. So before we uh, talk about the process of actually putting the book together, um, I'd love to talk a bit about just the broader field of scholarship on women in medieval music. Uh, so I guess kind of in your eyes, what is going on in the field right now and where does this volume in particular fit into that broader field of scholarship? Um, so I can start. Um, so if we're starting now, I think one of the the things that got us interested in this project in the first place, or at least got me interested in the project, is that I felt like there had been sort of waves of interest in the in the field, um, starting with some of the earliest musicology, you know, starting with um, 19th century French and German writers. Um, and for me, it had been really uh, important or sort of formative that early 21st century sort of wave. Um, part of the reason I did that undergrad thesis is because Songs of the Women Trouvers came out while I was kind of casting about for an undergrad thesis topic. Um, and um, Thomas Paine was my advisor and my undergrad, and he wanted me to do something that he felt good about working with me on. Um, and so that felt like a really good um, fit. And I was so inspired by those works, the Songs of Women Troubadours and the Songs of Women Troubadours and the Medieval Women's Song volume and um, the Vox Feminae volume, all these things that came out right around that time. And then while I was working on my PhD, it felt like there was not much new coming out um, during that time. There were some really great articles, but not a lot of these sort of larger collections and um, more comprehensive efforts. So part of what we wanted to do was to sort of catch up all some of those people who'd been working on all these littler projects in that time and um, bring them together so that somebody new, maybe a student casting about for a thesis topic now, would be able to sort of figure out what the approaches were that were available to them. Um, and then I feel like there's there has started to be another wave sort of during, during the putting together this book where there were um, additional works coming out. Um, like the Golden and Kong volume on gender and voice in medieval French literature and song um, that came out that we both contributed to and came out during the process of writing this book um, that I think is part of sort of a, a new interest in pulling together these approaches. I think that's absolutely right. But it's like complex to try and imagine all the different historiographical themes that have um, resulted in this in this book. So, for example, you know, we we were both inspired by some of the interesting, um, really historical writing, which tried to in, try to find actual women musicians. You know, where can we find them? Where's the evidence? Were there any? You know, those are the questions that were asked by those early scholars, and and then sort of occasional lone voices saying, "Oh yes, there were a few, but they only did these things," or by others saying, "Yes, we can find them every time." a poem or a lyric is written in a female voice that must must be a real woman in there um somewhere along the way um so different approaches for to where women's musicality musicality might be represented and how um where there wasn't really a clear 
um, single ideology that fed into our approach, but where we were often, and our contributors were often responding to one little thread that they pulled out from that earlier literature, which of course was from lots of different different um, fields. There's, there are, of course, non-concentrated um, uh, areas of, of this literature as well that aren't, I'll try that again, there are, of course, other areas of the discipline that are not really specifically in medieval song, but that has, have affected how we came to, to compile the book the way that we did. Um, one of them is about what's happened in the last 20 or so years about decentering composers. So, for example, we might have been looking for geni- genius uh, women composers to rival Machot, um, which obviously has is, is, is an almost impossible dream um whereas with this book we weren't only looking at composers we were looking at the agency of women and we're also looking at the ways in which they might be represented as listeners as performers as patrons and it just absolutely opened up um, a whole variety of different approaches that allowed us not to be too worried about the plurality of the stories that we were telling um, and that was um, I should I should credit Anna with the idea of looking at the idea of female voice song rather than women's musicianship, for example, as as a as a thing that it was kind of equivalent to male composers of the past and how we find them. Um, very much came from from her uh, inspiration. So I think we respond to things that have happened across musicology as well as within the histories of medieval song and try to give them a moment of where were we then. Where are we now? Okay, there's a lot of exciting work happening and here's some of it, but where can we go next? Yeah, that's fantastic. I wonder, um, just kind of going back a little bit, I think picking up on that thread of like moving away from authorship, but um, Anna, you mentioned the the anthology songs of the women, True Vares and Troubadours. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what, I mean, that was 23 years ago, maybe at this point. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, those volumes aims were how they were put together also maybe just who the troubadours and the true fairs were in case there's anyone listening who <laughs> is um not completely familiar with uh medieval music and this is kind of a new area um if either of you want to re- answer to that so i can start with the, just who are the troubadours and the troubadours that we tend to use and most people use troubadours in a much outside of musicology and French studies tend to use it in a much broader sort of traveling minstrels kind of um, association. But usually when we are talking about troubadours in the field, we're talking about um, Southern, what we would now call Southern French or Occitan Provencal um, singer songwriters, kind of. They were um, not necessarily the musicians playing the music, but the um, creators of that music or the finders of the music. And then the trouvères are the northern French equivalent that tends, uh, then that trend kind of happened slightly later in the north of France. So they tend to be um, a little bit chronologically um, displaced from the troubadours, but we're talking about sort of 12th and 13th century. Um, and the Books. I'm most familiar with the Songs of the Women Trouvères book. That's the one that I really um, have dug into the most because that's um, the area that I've focused in. But I think what's sort of ties that back to the comments we were making about authorship is that just the the titles of these collections, Songs of the Women Troubadours and Songs of the Women Trouvères and Medieval Women's Songs are all seem to um, really want to assert authorship for women um, and to sort of I think 
shift from the default of assuming that all the music is by men, even if it's in a female voice, to the other extreme to say, if it's in a female voice, let's just assume it's by women um, and start from that from that presumption. Um, so part of what we're doing is in this collection, I think, is pulling sort of refinding the the middle ground there to say maybe some of these are by women but if we even if we can't prove that what could they still tell us about women and about the way that women were viewed yeah because there are lots of reasons why you know lyrics might be written in a female voice that within the liturgy there are you find examples of the the direct personalized experiences of women saints but we don't expect that those are chants written by women but when they happen in secular contexts immediately we think oh this must be real people and their real experiences um so one of the things that is appealing to scholars of the trouvers and, and and troubadours is is that lived experience that seems to be evidenced in that repertory um and one of the things that i think we were just sort of wanting to push back at is that assumption as anna points out an assumption of all of anonymous being either only ever a man or a woman if the gender of the poetic voice is female it's hard yeah of course and i wonder if i could just pick up on as once again um something that was mentioned earlier the chanson de malmarie as maybe an example um could you explain a little bit what goes on in those and maybe we can just think about other uh, kinds of female voice genres as we go on through the podcast I think one of the things that our readers will pick up on is that to some extent we are a little bit reliant in that this is a book for you know a wide audience on using genre descriptors that aren't necessarily medieval ones um you know that so you'll find words like pastorelle you'll find words like chanson de malmarie um that themselves speak to the literature on those on those uh, genres or on those types of song but aren't necessarily um the, the terms in these in those cases of the period in which the songs were being written um chanson de malmarie is is used quite loosely to describe those songs and there are quite a lot of them that seem to describe um unhappily married usually women but also unhappily mar- married men um who are unhappily married often with violence in the relationship or there uh, there's some form of adulterous relationship going on um and you often get direct speech in those so it might be a, a a woman saying why does my husband beat me or it might be a man saying why why is my woman not behaving the way that she ought to behave with me so the the bad marriage is often really quite a uh, a difficult social relationship um, and they do feel very um, personalised but that they're also very stylized um, for the most part. Is that fair to say Anna? Yeah I, I think that's a good description and I think that this the how prevalent that genre that sort of um, type is in the in the literature plays into a lot of the history of the field that we talked about, because some of those early 19th century authors were saying this can't be by women because they, it would be more modest and they wouldn't be so sort of open about this behavior if it was by, um, if it was by women. And then later, even, you know, later in the 20th century, scholars saying this can't be by women because it's a male fantasy of this sort of promiscuous woman. Um, but because the type is so strong, it's been used sort of on both sides to say yeah, this can't just be a description of someone's experience because it's too stereotyped. 
across yeah, all these it, pieces. Exactly. And and one of the sort of offshoots of that, that I've done some work on the Chanson de Non, the nun song, is effectively also a Chanson de Malmarie. Is that in this case she's she's trapped in a nunnery and unable to have sex with the 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 men that she des- desires. Um of course, you know what those are. Those are strange poetic situations where apparently a, a very young nun, usually, you know, she's just described as kind of teenage, early teenage, is describing a sort of wanting relationships outside of what's permitted in the nunnery, and the, and she's sort of downtrodden and you know prepubescent, and it's it's pretty grim, really. Um, so so you have to ask, you know, who's who who was wanting to imagine those things. You know, who was wanting to imagine those things? And and whereas some authors have taken that as, you know, historical examples of women who are in nunneries against their will, finally getting their say about how miserable they are. Others, and I'd count myself amongst them, see that as well. That sounds to me like, you know, the fairly dodgy imaginings of a, you know, dirty old man, you know monastic or not um so they are they they can be read in lots of different ways and one of the things we wanted to make sure we did in the book was allow the authors to have lots of different perspectives on quite diverse repertory um not expect everybody to agree on where along the spectrum of historical reality or male fantasy or whatever um these songs might lie Yeah, just uh, picking up again on the kind of older generation of scholars from the 19th century. um, I know you, I I had this written down because it's just a wonderfully um, evocative quote, this uh, uh, quote from Alfred Jean Roy that you include in your introduction. um, And he rejects that any surviving songs could have been written by women because, and here I quote, if these songs were attributable to women, one would find without a doubt a more tender tone, more moving, more discreet, especially, and some some shadow of female modesty. It is not so. Um, I think that quote just really stands as a wonderful testimony to the kind of um, great work that has been done more recently and how that's moving um, the field of kind of music studies forward. Um, This was really, I guess, not that much more than 100 years ago. I don't know if you know when the quote was from off the top of your heads, but uh, not that deep in history. (laughs) Well, we, we certainly didn't have to, you know, be too worried about the, the unnecessary modesty of our female contributors, for example. You know, we, we <laughs> some of them were really bold and um, and, and the, the volume speaks really colourfully um, to both medieval culture and to modern interpretations um, in the ways that seem uh, very, very useful, very timely and which Jean Roy would be um, massively shocked by. <laughs> I think this feels like a really natural segue into thinking about how the book was put together. I know, Lisa, you just already mentioned the um, great number of female contributors you had and how that I think I would also comment on um, the wonderful spread of both kind of geographic areas and also time periods that you have in here. The Middle Ages is uh, not actually a small and niche area. It's quite a few centuries. So congratulations on getting such a wide. And I think um, nothing's ever perfectly representative, but this felt very uh, kind of opening, I think. Um, could you talk a little bit about how putting, what the process of putting the book together was like? Well, Anna started it. So I think I think Anna should start with this one. So I had been contacted by Brill and asked about writing, about writing this volume. So they actually sort of got the ball rolling actually 10 years ago now, um, they originally reached out. Um, and then the person who had reached out at that point retired before I sort of was able to turn my attention to it. Um, and then they reached out again in, I think, 2017. 
and um, I was a little bit unsure about taking something like this on for the first time. So I asked Lisa to, to join me as somebody with a little bit more experience with, um, with editing and also because I felt a little nervous about the sacred music that I really wanted to include in this, but was not sure I had the, um, the background to be a really effective editor for that. Um, so Lisa luckily <laughs> agreed to join on with me and, and work on this. And we wanted to... Um, invite contributors rather than putting out a, a call for paper or call for submissions because we wanted that really broad representation. We wanted to make sure that we were finding people writing about anything we could even at the like even stretch Europe to possibly mean. So we have like Iceland and we have Islamic courts because we really wanted to think as broadly as possible about what could be considered European. Um, in a medieval context, and also chronologically, what could be considered medieval. Um, and we also, because this is a companion, um, I wanted to make sure we were getting a lot of different approaches and methodologies, um, and also that we were getting projects by people who had been working on women for um, for some time, um, either more established scholars or new scholars who are working closely with people who are established in this field, because um, the great thing about, I think, the state of the field is that there it's no longer completely a separate field, right? Like everyone is acknowledging that, that women were part of this music and writing about women as it intersects with whatever their um, area is. But I really wanted to make sure we were getting submissions from people who had been thinking about this as a field rather than just as something that was kind of intersecting um, their interests temporarily. Yeah, and when we looked at, I mean, our initial conversations, which of course were, you know, via, I don't know, was it Skype then? I don't think I'd heard of Zoom at that point. Um, was uh, we, we were thinking about who's who's working in this field at the moment. Um, obviously, I, I'm based in the UK and, and Anna in the States. We... we have sort of overlapping um, communities that we're invested in, but Anna knows the sort of Kalamazoo community, uh, community much better than I do, um, and I might go to the Medren more re- regularly because it's based in Europe. Um, so we know different people, so that was helpful. Um, but also, we really wanted to find as wide a range of scholars as possible, um, including it was really important to us that we helped and supported early career researchers find a good solid venue for publication that they we could support them through into making maybe their first publication um, effective and in a, in a prominent place as well as working with more established scholars I don't want to say older you know but just but from different from different levels of experience um, the number of uh, chapters that we ended up with was quite big <laughs> and and indeed at various stages was a bit bigger um but obviously in, over time things go uh, get a little bit muddier and, and during covid as you can imagine people's situations changed um we did sketch and approach quite a few men um and you'll see from the contents page that only one of our contributors is male, um, David Catalunya, um, working on the sort of Las Luelgas um, manuscript contexts. And so that's not by design. We did approach quite a few men. Um, we were we were wanting to make sure that the, the that we engage them in this project. You know, it, I think it's important to have 
men interested and invested in writing about female voice song. Some of them, I would say, just aren't ready yet. You know, they're working on repertories that would speak very, very nicely to these sorts of themes. And hopefully they will go on to do that. But for various reasons, they weren't able to quite find a way into their repertory, whether that's the Cantigas de Santa Maria or whether that's particular plain chant repertories or whatever, which would lend themselves beautifully to female voice song. But they weren't themselves able to identify something that they could contribute to this collection for lots of reasons. Maybe they were in in the middle of three other projects and that's fair enough. Um, But I would have, I was a bit disappointed how few men ended up uh, as authors in the collection, Um, but it wasn't because we only wanted it to include women. However, it was rather nice that the (laughs) the contents were also dominated by women with all sorts of voices, if you like, with representing all sorts of different perspectives because you know, w- women don't only do this thing one way. Um, and the, the collection's sort of, um, its variety, I think, is one of its its strengths. Um, yeah, I think the interdisciplinarity of this volume, and this is something that I think is quite common in music studies and in medieval studies more generally, but you really do have contributors coming from all different kind of departments and uh, disciplinary backgrounds and trainings. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that meant in terms of getting a kind of cohesive running line through the volume or if you feel that that wasn't even a priority and you just kind of let it happen and it it happened as it did we certainly knew that we couldn't do a chronological spread we couldn't start in the ninth century or the eighth century and sort of plow one through chronologically there would have been very obvious clusters um, of attention and there would have been gaping holes um and also it's it's there's not a sort of linear history of female voice song um really available to be written in one in one book any more than there's a linear history of of song to be written in in one book um so anna's suggestion was to theme it um in these different sort of categories i'm sure that anna can speak to that uh, for us how those came about right so we i feel like we wanted to be really broad um and uh, as lisa was saying that it would have maybe a chronological or geographical organization, um, you would have ended up reading, you know, maybe multiple articles about or chapters about motets back to back, but with somewhat different approaches. And because this is a companion, we wanted to showcase the different approaches to women's song, but more as a as a place for people to find their own entry into future projects it felt more appropriate to me to, to organize it around the kinds of approaches and to, to draw people's attention to that variety rather than the maybe less variety in what people have written about so far. And you know, trying to instead show we could take these same approaches and apply them to a little bit broader to other kinds of music. Um, I found it was really inspiring to work across these different disciplines. I think there were some practical um, implications of that. One of them was trying to figure out how to uh, order Arabic names in the index. <laughs> you know, whether you know, we we didn't have the experience with that, um, and then the on the other hand, um, it did involve some coaching of these scholars because when we approached the ones who were not musicologists, we said, you know, we want this. This is a companion to musical culture, and we do want your work to be really focusing on the whatever phenomenon you're talking about as a musical phenomenon, even if that's not your disciplinary focus. So we did end up sort of coaching a couple of these um, contributors into including their first 
musical examples in their articles, even people who write extensively about musical culture. Um, but from our perspective, could say like to draw those line, threads across multiple articles, it would be really helpful for our musicologist readers for you to actually notate this so that we instead of or here are the conventions for writing out song form that musicologists are going to to respond to and understand and have have a framework for um, so I, I think that it was helpful in both directions for us to to um, as musicologists work with these other scholars in literature and um, in other fields and then also to to learn a lot from them about their fields and I don't think Anna will mind me saying that the, the order of things did change considerably <laughs> as we worked through the project um so Anna's very um neat uh topics of um sort of ritual discourse materiality um subjectivity and emotion and representation as we find in the final volume the art uh, the, the articles were reordered within those um, quite a few times. Eventually, we sort of end up with a kind of mini chronological arrangement of articles within each of those categories just to help people through a little bit. Um, and we spent a little bit more time in later versions of the introduction just sort of talking people through how, how best to use the volume and what the what the rationale was, if you like, um, for how that, that might work. But things did change um change in order and placement and whatever through through the writing and, and editing of the volume um including in in response to sort of the editors uh, of the of the series but also the the two reviewers comments um you know who who said well, are you sure you want to put it that way around or what about moving this up or they're a very famous person you should have them and we try to avoid the the more um, personal reasons for, for uh, arranging people in particular orders and, and went instead for, for slightly more objective um, arrangements of material. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off just Although to if, you're, to... if you're if yours is up first then it was absolutely because you're the most important <laughs> <laughs> just uh just to turn to the book itself and i uh especially anna because you mentioned the music examples in it it's just a it's a really beautiful volume it's really gorgeous uh hardcover brill just do lovely work i think but there's a wonderful amount of both music examples um and also you have color plates which i just think is really lovely and not even in the middle of the book they're just on the page that's a <laughs> a really nice detail maybe I'm easily wooed but um I wonder if you could talk a bit about where and you know you've kind of alluded to this already but um who do you see the ideal audience for the kind of Brill Companion series as being is this great for the undergrad classroom for grad students for researchers of any point um who do you see as kind of being maybe the person who'll get the most benefit out of looking through this book 
we hope very much that um, people who work in any one of the disciplines that are represented in the in the book will be able to quite easily assign chapters to um, their undergraduate and graduate classes. Um, but I learned so much from uh, reading and, and uh, you know, very closely the, the different um, chapters that were adjacent to my field that I know from personal experience. And it's going to be a useful volume for researchers on, um, you know, for, for even in your own specialist area, if you're if you're a medievalist or a uh, medieval musicologist. Um, the interdisciplinarity of the of, of the book means that um, we have designed it to be usable by people across the whole of medieval studies, you know, you have the Kalamazoo crowd, um, but also to, you know, musicologists who want to talk about music. And we haven't, you know, avoided talking about music, but we have tried to make sure that any time that we use terminology that is specific to a repertory, we try to be consistent, we try to make sure that explanations or glossing comes in the at the right level and the right time. Um you know, there's no point writing uh, a big book about a subject that you think merits it, but then it excluding all of its readers by being too parochial or too focused or whatever. So we've, we've tried to do that. I mean, I'm sure there will be chapters that speak more readily to certain types of reader, but you should be you should be able to if you've got a if you're a knowledgeable musician or you've got an interest in medieval studies, you should be able to access all of it on some level. And I can sort of imagine that, you know, someone who might be um, thinking about getting into this field, either from the perspective of a non-musicologist who's thinking about starting to incorporate some musical study into their work, um, or a a medievalist musicologist who's thinking about getting into, um, you know, these people who maybe are not quite, have not been quite ready to write about women, um, but are looking for how to, how to enter into that um, and to get caught up on it, um, that this could be an entry point. So that could be a student, but it could be somebody just um, looking for new approaches uh, to to the different repertories that are represented or to adjacent repertories. Um, And I think that there there are areas that are less well covered than others. Um, as we mentioned, like Lisa and I both wrote about 13th century French motets. Um, so there's a couple of, of chapters about that. Um, we were lucky to get a chapter on Italian music. Um, but I think if you read the chapter on Italian music, you'll see that it's at, that, that field is at, is at a different place than some of the other, than French studies in terms of attention to gender. Um, and I think they're still sort of in the phase of um, gathering evidence that there are women <laughs> involved um, and pulling that all together. And so I would hope that maybe putting that chapter together with the other chapters in the book sort of shows some some exciting possible directions to go to go next. So even if you're already in one of these fields, I think it could maybe be a great jumping off point. I'm going to be assigning a couple of chapters to my new module. In the, in the next semester uh and that will be under it's sort of, um second year undergraduates who are uh who, who have had no area of their curriculum before beethoven yet so that's and who, a lot of whom will be also be pop scholars so there's you know there, there are ways in which sections of this book can speak quite widely i think I think um, this is such a fantastic introduction to music in the Middle Ages as well, of just kind of putting women in the center of it straight away. 
Um, drawing attention, I guess, to the timeline of this book, I know it was largely put together um, during the COVID years and also during a couple of years where I think we've all seen the field of music studies and of medieval studies change massively and kind of people really reprioritize things. Um, I would say this still feels like this feels like a very timely volume, even amidst all of those changes. And I think it's really come out the other side and it feels like it speaks to, you know, music studies in the year of 2023. Um, but I wonder if you had any thoughts um, about what that kind of process was like of putting a book together in uh, what I think we can all recognize for some pretty stressful years. It, it was bad luck, <laughs> you know, uh, in terms of the timing. Yeah. And of course, COVID didn't just affect us as editors. It also affected every single one of our contributors in all sorts of ways that we couldn't have foreseen. Um, it additionally affected um, anybody who wanted to use an archive, um, who needed to access a library, who wanted to communicate with each other, who might normally have met each other at a conference. On sort of every level, um, COVID, you know, was was disrupting uh, to, to, to everybody involved in the project. Um, it, it, it also um, meant, <laughs> meant that uh, both Anna and I were juggling this project, not just alongside our kind of more standard um, academic or um, librarianship roles, but also um, alongside our parenting um, and family roles, because, you know, homeschooling was a thing in both the UK and, and the USA. Um, and as a parent of children, one of whom has additional needs, you know, that, that was a really challenging context. So what we tended to do, um, and I hope this is not just my, my impression, uh, Anna, you can you can kind of shake your fist at me, is that there were times when for one of us, actually everything was quite a lot. Um, and so we would take on the next phase of, well, at the moment it needs to be music examples and Anna's got a few more um, bits of energy to work on that at the moment. Or the next thing is contri- contacting contributors about their review, their revisions. Oh, but Lisa has got a bit of space whilst something's happening in family context or whatever and can can do that so we sort of topped and tail quite a lot uh, I have to say you know very straight away it was an absolute pleasure working with Anna I think we, ha- we had a good understanding we never have we have we met in person Anna I don't know AMS 2012 oh my I God. remember only because I was so nervous and you made some very kind comments after my paper oh you see <laughs> You see, so that's why I didn't scare you away. But, you know, we, we, we don't have an in-person, ongoing working relationship like many editors might work in the same institution as one another. Um, so we we were lucky in a sense that, you know, we had a sort of complementary ways of working and, and we were very compassionate with one another and also with, with our contributors in terms of the fact that, you know, life goes on and life had to take a priority. So there were there was no point in which we sort of threatened contributors, if you can't get it by this deadline, you're off the project. Um, you know, contributors got ill, their family members got ill, um, as, as you can imagine. And also, you know, I think occasionally had babies, you know, all sorts of things. Um, during during that time period so you've got to kind of work around it that said it was flexible enough that it didn't hold us back much um looking at our initial plans for the timeline of publication i think in the end we were not far off a year away maybe is that right anna is that that yeah yeah, i think so and you know we had also even before covid yeah, basically, as soon as we started the project, I went back to grad school for a library degree, as well as parenting. And then as soon as I finished my library degree and started a new job, um, COVID hit 
right you know, within two months after that. Um, we both moved, I think, at least once. I think I moved two or three times during this. Um, so that, yeah, there was a lot of, we had to be very flexible and uh, forgiving of ourselves and each other and our contributors. Um, I think overall it was a really um, positive experience because we didn't have a lot of um, people on any side of it who were um, inflexible or um, not understanding of, of all of us balancing our lives with this big project. Um, I wonder if now would be a good moment to kind of zoom in a little bit on both of your own contributions, because of course there's 15 other contributors, which uh, once again, to reiterate what an impressively large number that is. <laughs> um, but you both have wonderful chapters on, as you mentioned already, the 13th century motet in here. So Anna, your chapter is entitled Transmission of Female Voice Motets in Late 13th Century Manuscripts. And I wonder if you could in the broadest strokes you would uh, you feel are appropriate to kind of uh, describe what you discuss in that chapter. So I love ta- I love motets for talking about voice because um, for anyone who who's not familiar with the the form of the motet, um, old French motets are generally um, well what modern again modern scholars when we use motet what we're usually talking about is a polyphonic work that's built on a slow moving lower voice that is usually derived from a chant melisma so it's just this one little snippet of chant that's that's been um, slowed down sort of and then between one and three faster moving additional voices on top of that um, and what's really fascinating about motets is that those will all be singing usually different texts they'll each be singing their own texts sometimes in different languages um, and the voices represented by those texts are sometimes really drastically different um, they might be one of these malmerhier songs combined with a song to the virgin mary you know happening right together on top of this chant um, and to me, even, you know, my whole career, I've been sort of fascinated by the question of like, why the, why did someone choose those voices <laughs> to combine? Um, and there have been musicologists who have said, you know, who cares? Like, it, you can't even tell what's going on in these things. It's probably about what it sounds like. Don't worry so much about what the texts are about. Um, but I just can't let go of the idea that there's some, some agency, someone put those together. Um, but it does affect the sound, and sometimes um, the sound of those voices also affects the sense. So, like one word might come through really clearly because two voices say it at the same time. Um, so, so sound um, and the the sense of the text are really um, connected. Uh, so it's really ripe for I think for talking about voice, but also for for talking about the way that the music. The actual actual music analysis can help us understand the text that they're not just sort of two separate things that we're that we're studying. Um, so my chapter is talking about some of the core largest manuscripts for these um, for these motets in the thir- in thirteenth century coming out of the Paris kind of um, environs. And these three manuscripts really overlap a lot in their contents. They have there's a, a number of motets that appear in two or three of these three manuscripts that all seem to come from similar time and place. Maybe we're drawing on each other or on some sort of shared source material. Um, so in this article, I just sort of turned my attention to if there's so much overlap, 
why are there some pieces that are different? <laughs> like, why would somebody have cop? Would why would somebody who might have had access to all the same pieces chosen not to copy some of these or um, to select others to, to include in their compilation? Um, and that's something I've investigated in some other articles as well in the past, um, think, especially the Montpellier Codex, and thinking about why are certain motets there, you know, in a certain order? And can that tell us something about the source materials or the process of the compiler or what their priorities um, or patronage might have been like, how they were made? Uh, I think there's a lot we can learn from how both how the, the individual voices within the motet are combined and then how different motets are combined in the same source material. That is a fantastic kind of summary and I think especially an introduction to what a motet is and what uh, some of these kind of really interesting questions are. Um, I know one of the cool things about your chapter is you kind of bring in the idea of Bakhtin's chronotope into it. Um, You also have brought Bakhtin into your work previously, I know, and I wonder, um, I think that particular kind of marriage of medieval source material and more recent theory is a really interesting one. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how you see that approach and um, what it kind of brought you in this chapter or in your work more generally? So my grad program was very um, theory heavy. We, did, we read a lot of theory in my grad program. I, t- um, I took a lot of classes with Gary Tomlinson. Um, that was the sort of emphasis. And most of it didn't, to be honest, didn't speak to me really. But I really found that Bakhtin's um, theories seem, once you get through, and of course I'm reading in translation because I don't read Russian, but once you get through the the language of it, a lot of it seems pretty common sense, <laughs> like the idea that um, that there's patterns in a lot of genres where a particular sort of passage of time and a location are sort of tied together and are part of the what the, is, defines that genre. Um, and really, it's I don't think it's much of a stretch to apply it to medieval sources because he writes he draws on ancient Greek romances and Arthurian stories and so on as examples. He intends those theories to be so broad that they apply to Western literature throughout um, throughout sort of written history. Really, he's he goes back quite far. Um, I think what's actually maybe um, unusual about the way I've used it here and elsewhere is that he very specifically is not applying it to lyric. This is his his theories are for discussing um, novels in his sense, and he's sort of asserting that there's some continuity between Greek romance and Arthurian stories and novelistic literature. Um, and I think he would say most of this doesn't apply to to lyric. Um, so I think that's what's maybe a bit. Um, more unusual here, but I think it actually works really well. It's just that I think medieval uh, lyric is actually really good about projecting the chronotope, for example, so concisely and powerfully. So the pastoral opening, and um, Lisa will probably talk more about the pastoral later, but they, so many of them open with, I went out riding the other day in some in some sense. And that's all, like, there's so much about passage of time and location just in that little that little couplet you know where they you know where we are placing this in time and that he's outdoors that he's on a horse like that that chronotope of the pastoral is really powerful um so in this case i'm talking about a much smaller uh, in this article i talk about a much more specific chronotope that only seems to um, appear in a very small repertory Uh, But I think we see it, I think it's a major sort of genre defining thing 
in in medieval song. Um, it's just using Bakhtin's language to try to summarize it. And this is a great moment maybe to hop over to Lisa and talk a little bit about the pastoral, which uh, I, I, I love about this conversation is kind of already raising how wonderfully repetitive medieval songs can be. Um, <laughs> so maybe Lisa, if you could kind of describe what the the kind of generic norms of the pastoral are generally, how you understand the term, and then maybe talk a little bit about your chapter in the book. I'd be pleased to. So the, the sort of idea of the pastoral obviously is a modern one, but um the way in which uh, scholars have treated pastoral texts and, and songs has really changed quite a lot um, over the past century or so. Um, the thing that sort of ties them together or the things that tie them together are usually some form of uh, encounter, uh, that's, that's the most objective way I can put it, you know, and a lot of scholars stopped there in what they, what they say, a romantic encounter, um, as people like Jennifer Saltstein and others remind us, actually, largely, this is that there's a, a sexual assault element to a lot of these um, songs. And whether or not consent is necessarily part of the the narrative there's just there is underpinning of of um you know elements of uh romance or just sex um and a, a wide spectrum between those two things evidence in in these songs usually in the outdoors usually um in terms of a power dynamic of a, a knight high ranking person on a beautiful white horse riding through a meadow he spots a you know lonely damsel she's usually singing to herself or playing a flute or hiding behind a bush and he finds her and they end up um, having sex in some way shape or form um there are elements of courtly behavior in there there are all sorts of elements that couldn't possibly happen at court um involved in those those situations and usually the, the the woman's voice is sort of it's it's represented in certain as, as uh, Anna w- would recognise certain tropes, if you like, of of their experience or of their vocality. So they're a really interesting and but quite problematic category of song because it's not just a sort of rustic rural idyll, you know, a a, a, a beautiful nostalgic um, picture of of song and lovemaking in the haystacks. Um, for the majority of the time, there's also some some element of you know, slight darker theme underpinning a lot of them. Not all of them are so explicit as as, as that, but but some are. So the the song that particularly caught my eye um, had some stock characters of the pastorel in it. It had Merrou, uh, it had um, uh, Emelou, and it had Robin. We know Robin, Robin and Marianne. And uh, whereas we might expect um, the narrator to be Robin. Um, In this particular song, it caught my eye because the narrator is a female protagonist, Emelo, which seemed to me um, unusual. Go as far as saying I'd not seen any others in which Emelo is is the narrator. And therefore, you know, what does what does that afford the um the author or compiler of this of this motet? What does that allow them to say about the experience or about the um the situation? And how does that affect how those ideas are handled musically? So in a sense, I 
started off quite excited you know as as one do one does in in you know when you're kind of finding your way into a song quite excited this this it's almost like a, a feminist pastorel you know women on top uh, uh women in charge of the situation she basically tells robin to you know d- go away go and find marrow who he's actually in love with you know leave me alone um and he goes away um whereas in the other text um it's it's less clear uh, that that's what's happening um so from that point of view it it seemed to have female empowerment somewhere in there and so that was the first way in which I came to do a kind of analysis of what what has been known as a resistant reading you know what is this telling us um about maybe an empowering pastoral what would that be like um Anyway, the more I looked at it and the more carefully I looked at it, there were also then, of course, um, the, the, that little nagging voice at the back of your brain going, I don't think that's the only way in which you could read that. <laughs> and in particular, the both texts, both um, both texted voices, because it's a, a three voice, uh, sorry, it's two voice. Um, I'll try that again. Both texts, texted voices in this three voice um, piece, um, end with a common refrain um, and the, the refrain itself uh, j'irai toute la vallée avec Marou um, it's like a call to arms it's I'm I'm gonna go all through the valley with Marou so I'm gonna I'm gonna commit myself to Marou so you could see that as like a, a, a an act of um, yeah being, being committed to the woman he was meant to be with fine um, on the other hand um valleys uh and so forth can be read quite salaciously across the literature of the period as also being representative of female genitalia so a little bit like the the modern um phrase going all the way with somebody this is this is the same sort of thing you know going all the way and that's why i took the title and made it sound even more salacious going all the way with marrow um the uh the, the idea that actually this is about objectifying women this is about whatever they say even when they tell you to go away um actually i will i regardless of that i will go all the way with 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 marrow so it's it can be read in different ways and i wanted to explore not only the potential resistant reading but also to really carefully take seriously the idea of obscenity in courtly texts of this period which aren't just nice songs um which can't which are not only readable at face value if you look at troubadour song for example slightly earlier um, people like simon gaunt have shown that they are absolutely infused with at least double if not triple meanings uh in their language um and in their in their tone and and I think perhaps musicologists are sometimes a little bit fearful, a little bit nervous about saying things which are, which are impolite or spotting, calling out potential obscenity for fear of it looking like they're reading into it because they've got a dirty mind themselves. Um, and, you know, maybe that's the case here. Who knows? But the, 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 the difficulty is if we overlook that, it just becomes a nice song about women in the, in the field, whereas actually there are... Um, there are resonances here of a whole variety of courtly courtly song in which women are sexualized, objectified, and objects of sexual assault. So it's a song that can be read in lots of different ways, and I guess that's what I wanted to explore in it. It raises all sorts of questions that I did not have time to explore about what on earth we do in performing that sort of song. Maybe that's book two. <laughs> and 
I mean, I guess maybe related to the idea of performance, but also just, um, Anna, you already spoke about the where you see music analysis kind of um, fitting into thinking about the motet in general. And Lisa, where did you bring music or how did you bring music into your kind of thinking through these uh, this particular motet? So one of the things that, that is interesting about motets is that even though the, the musical language can be relatively stylized and it seems very tightly controlled, on the other hand, when you when you know the corpus very well and you get used to the, that language, you can start to see ways in which particular ideas are brought to the fore, for it, particularly in the combination of different texts, in the placement of voices, in the way that different voices cross over in terms of their vocal range, um, in the use of sound and silence, in the use of rhyme. Um, for me, the song uh, is absolutely infused with the with the name Merou, uh, which is not just the tenor, but is found uh, sort of manner, eh, for, for Marot, but also which is found um, across the the, the the three texts in terms of the, the sound world of those texts that seem to be built around the the, the name of Marot, for example. So the, there are different ways in which music and text can be brought together and kind of um, unpicked a bit that um, can be really fascinating. And um, Anna has shown that you can you can do that in all sorts of ways across across the Trouvé repertoire um, as a whole. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, we are coming up to about an hour, which feels like a good time to maybe offer you both an opportunity to talk about any exciting work you have coming up or things that people can keep an eye out for that might have your name attached to them. Um, Anna, would you like to start? Sure. Um, since I've made this sort of um, career change, actually, the things I'm working on most right now are in the library science world. Um, but one that I think might be relevant to other um other listeners or readers might be the um, work that I'm doing with other members of the Music Library Association to create a document about um, information literacy teaching in music um, and specifically applying some sort of broader ideas about information literacy to a music-specific context, Um, basically giving some guidelines for how you might um, teach information literacy even if you don't have a research paper. You know, even if you're um, teaching a studio course, how teaching students to be good users of information, even if that's the information they get from their own body when they are when they are performing, um, or information that they find um, from in a masterclass from an instructor, uh, teaching students to use that material to seek seek it out to be ethical in their um, in their approach to information. I think is important across the board, but uh, this document will be sort of helping people, um, music librarians, and hopefully also music faculty, uh, see those connections. And we're hoping to present about it at some um, musicology conferences in the future. So people may see me back at musicology conferences in the next couple of years. Fantastic. I'll keep an eye out. Um, Lisa? Uh, so my most recent work um, falls into sort of two areas. One, I'm just finishing a, a project on 14th century masculinity in music, um, looking at English motets. You know, what were the the role models that male clerics had for their own lives in the polyphony that they were singing, um, which has been uh, quite a lot of fun. I need to finish that. That's the priority. Um, and then more widely, actually, a lot of my work um, is falling into the 15th century at the moment and looking at... Um, 
networks of patronage um, and uh, sort of what musicianship meant in in the 15th century in England. Um, so I was really inspired by some of the work in this volume um, by Anne Bagnall Yardley and by Gillian Gower um, that, you know, remind us there's still a lot to do about really articulating women's musical knowledge um, in the 15th century and, and in um, England and uh, and uh, neighbouring countries. Um, so I'm looking at uh, women's liturgical knowledge in, in particularly in the southeast of England, but also musicianship in, in areas such as York that seem to be ignored a little bit compared with London. Um, you know, who, who were the female patrons of this stuff, particularly um, elite female patrons who were often um, uh, associated with with their own chapels uh, adjacent to their sort of uh, the male nobility for example but we they don't tend to turn up in our standard narrative so let's let's uh, let's let's re- rewrite some of those sorts of things and I'm trying to do it through working on quite prominent male musicians like you know John Dunstable for example or Lionel Power although the musicians of that of that generation who were absolutely working adjacently with some really knowledgeable um, women and also with uh, female houses, convents at Zion, for example, um, or the women at Sopwell Nunnery adjacent to St Albans. So there are lots of ways that we can do that sort of work with the slightly later repertory um, in ways that I think are are largely absent from from the historical narrative at the moment. That sounds fantastic. Um, Professor Lisa Colton, Dr. Anna Catherine Groth, thank you so much for taking some time out today. Um, to anyone listening, please check out a companion to Female Voice Song and Women's Musical Agency from your library. And if your library doesn't have one, try and ask them if they can get one because it's a really beautiful book and I think is a really valuable asset to any collection. Um, thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.